APTA is providing regular updates and guidance on COVID-19. On May 29th, we recorded a video dialogue with Michelle Colley, David Levine, and Hadia Green-Guerrero, where they discussed how to keep safe while reopening outpatient clinics. Here's that discussion. Hello and welcome to APTA's reopening of safety considerations. We are keeping safe while reopening outpatient clinics. Today will be a live Q&A. And we have some presenters with us that I'll be introducing. We're going to talk about how right now the country is moving towards reopening gradually. And the rules, regulation, policies, and recommendations are swiftly being amended. But valid concerns remain about how to safely run an outpatient facility during a pandemic. So in this Facebook Live event today, we'll have an opportunity for members to ask questions of APTA staff and colleagues in the spaces of physical therapy and infection control to assist with facilitating evidence-based safety precautions and best practices as outpatient facilities remain open and reopen. It's recommended that participants, if you haven't already, look at the considerations for outpatient physical therapy clinics during the COVID-19 public health crisis my name is Hadia Green-Guerrero. I'm one of the physical therapists in the American Physical Therapy Association's practice department. And it's my pleasure to introduce to you today Drs. David Levine and Michelle Colley. Michelle Colley is a board-certified orthopedic clinical specialist. She is the CEO of Performance Physical Therapy, a 13-clinic private practice with locations in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Kali is the president of APTA Rhode Island and chairs the private practice section's PR and marketing committee. David Levine is a professor at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, where he holds the Walter M. Klein Chair of Excellence in Physical Therapy. He is a board-certified orthopedic clinical specialist and a Catherine Worthingham Fellow of the American Physical Therapy Association. Levine has been working and conducting research in the control of clinical infectious disease since 2014 as a founding member of the Clinical Infectious Disease Control Unit at UTC and performs contact tracing as part of a coronavirus response team. His research focuses on bacterial contamination in the clinical setting. Our third presenter who may be able to join us um, remotely was Amy Snyder, who is a clinical therapist in the outpatient orthopedic setting. She owns and operates PT Plus Management in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Snyder is secretary of the American Physical Therapies Association private practice section, PPS, and chair of the PPS COVID advisory committee. So, Amy, if you are able to join us remotely via the chat, we welcome you there. What I'd like to do is start off with the presenters. And I'll start off with Michelle and then David, you can go next. I'd like you to share with the audience um, somewhat about your practice, where you are academically or and or practice-wise, where your state is in the reopening stage as a state, and um, just give us a little bit of back of your own background. So if we could start with you, Michelle, 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for hosting this event. And it's wonderful to bring our community together to discuss some of these challenges that we're all working through at this stage. So in little Rhode Island here, we feel like we're very sandwiched between New York and Massachusetts, which are obviously two states who have been significantly impacted by COVID. Um, Rhode Island at this stage is a state of just over a million people. We have had almost 600 deaths at this stage and over 13,000, almost 14,000 people who have been tested positive with the virus. So definitely a state we are very much impacted um, by the virus. So in early March is when we first started seeing a um, decrease in the visits and patients coming into our clinics. And by mid-March, the clinic that I oversee and run, we actually decided to close to in-clinic care and we moved to going 100% telehealth. Um, we were able to maintain services with telehealth at about a 40% of our volume. And during the next, the few following weeks, we put systems in place for our reopening. Um, I've been privileged and lucky enough to be part of the PPS Advisory Committee, which Amy does chair. And in that committee, there's a lot of discussion about what it looks like, what does in-clinic care look like, and how do we, how do we protect our patients, protect our staff, and move forward in a responsible way. Also realizing that every state has impacted in very different ways at different times. So for where we are in Rhode Island, um, we opened up our clinics um, approximately three to four weeks ago, but during that time we worked with the COVID Advisory Committee and then as, as the um, president for APTA Rhode Island, we developed one specifically for Rhode Island. So I had been contacted and worked with the um, Department of Business Regulations in Rhode Island and they had actually asked for us to come up with guidelines and recommendation for physical therapy practices. And with and in doing so, we helped to develop the sort of written recommendations and considerations that ultimately were revised and reviewed by APTA and now available for everyone. Um, so it's it, having the regulations, and not so much regulations, are almost the considerations has helped our staff, has helped our patients, helped our community feel, understand where we are and the processes and procedures we're putting in place to ensure that we're continuing to be able to provide care, but also doing it in a safe manner and what meets the guidelines for our state. So at this stage, we're continuing to see an increase in patients. We're probably 20 or 20% of our caseload now is seen by telehealth. Um, that's because of either patient choice or fear or because they've been exposed or been sick. And the rest is in the clinic and we're running at about a 60% of our normal capacity per, per patient volume. So we're certainly a long way from where we need to be, but there's been a lot of changes in operations to help manage those, those challenges, which I'm happy to discuss and talk more about today. So thank you very much. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you, Rhode Island and PPS for your contributions to the APTA's versions of considerations. David. Oh, well, also uh, very happy to be here. Michelle and I had not met before today, but um, I actually have a, clinical trial that's going on in Rhode Island. So we may be, we may be recruiting her to get more involved in that in the future. Uh, and of course that clinical trial right now is on hold because of uh, all of this uh, that's going on. Tennessee has not been hit nearly as hard. 
as a lot of states. Uh, we have the same, similar population to New Jersey. And um, we've had about 350 deaths and they've had about 11,300, something like that. So really big difference, um, you know, regionally. We have had a number of outpatient clinics that have never closed. Uh, they were never shut down for one day. Um, obviously, patient load is significantly down and, and making sure that we protect the patients that are at higher risk is a big part of that. And uh, also, um, you know, educating staff, keeping our therapists safe, our patients safe. We have also gone to telehealth for probably a smaller percentage than in Rhode Island, but we, we are providing that uh, as well. So uh, I think... Um, you know, there, like Michelle said, there are some significant regional differences. We are pretty much open at the university. We are having classes and labs at this point with social distancing, with students have their temperatures taken every day. They're logged in with a questionnaire as they walk in the building. We've been back for about three weeks now at the university. Uh, then they're not allowed to bring anything in with them, which is hard because students normally bring their laptop or their iPad, their phones. Not even phones can come in with them. So uh, they and for lunch, they have to go to their car and eat lunch outside. So we don't have shared areas for lunch. But the positive thing is they're back in class, getting through their labs. We've had to set up, you know, TV screens in different rooms so we can have people spread out. And of course, the main goal is not to delay graduation there. Most of our students are set to be in clinic for a lot of the summer. So uh, a lot of changes, a lot of you know extra expenses that have had to be into moving things ahead. Thank you, David. So what I'd like to do is move into our question and answer section of today's talk. And I want to encourage the audience to please enter your questions in the chat box that I see many of you have already started to use. And we'll try to get to as many of those as we can. If you have specific questions, we encourage you to email those to the practice department, which is practice hyphen, the short version of department, so D-E-P-T, at APTA.org. So, David, I'm going to start with you, and I want to ask, um, let's start with the basics. Can you help us understand the basic difference between bacteria and virus, and if there are any treatment approaches that, are, that would be different? Sure. Um, actually, I lectured on bacteria versus viruses a few weeks ago, so we could talk for a couple hours about this, but I'm going to talk for just two or three minutes. And um, a lot of my work is in bacteria. Uh, I, I kind of got into this world through microbiology and zoonotic disease, uh, which was an area that I've worked in with working with our veterinary college since uh, 2003. But um, in, in general, viruses are much smaller than bacteria. When we look at um, COVID-19, we're looking at like around 0.15 microns, still small enough to get caught in a HEPA filter um, and, you know, still small enough that we can deal with it. But the biggest viruses are smaller than the smallest bacteria. So there is, you know, kind of that physical difference. Bacteria are relatively complex compared to viruses as well. Uh, bacteria can survive on their own. Uh, they can be thermophilic, survive in extreme heat in, in you know, extreme cold temperatures. Uh, and another thing about bacteria is that most of them are harmless. Probably 99% of bacteria are harmless. 
Uh, when we think about viruses, most viruses can cause disease. So they're, they're kind of on the opposite spectrum in that. I mean, we have a lot of really good bacteria that help us digest food. They may destroy a disease uh, containing microbes. They actually can fight cancer cells. We use them for bioremediation. For example, you get an oil spill or something, we have bacteria that go and eat it up and clean things. So most viruses though um, do cause disease and they're pretty specific about the cells that they attack. Um, one of the big differences between bacteria and viruses is how they replicate. So bacteria replicate, and this is gonna bring people way back to biology or whatever, but by binary fission where they divide into two daughter cells. So one becomes two, two becomes four, you get that compound math. And with something like E. coli, we can have a cell become 7 million within 12 hour period. So they're, they can divide very rapidly and we can see symptoms from bacterial infection like food poisoning with things like salmonella pretty quickly. Viruses need a host cell to survive. Uh, when we have virus particles in the environment, we just call those virions and they can be problematic if they take over a cell. So they have to take over a cell to actually do something. Then once they take over the cell, they don't divide like a bacteria. They basically make the cell, and we have a VW plant in town. We make the Atlas and the facade and a lot of the VWs uh, in America come from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And it's kind of like assembling a car. You have all these different parts that have to get put back together. So basically the virus forces the cell to build all its subcomponents, then it's put back together, and then exits the cell, kills the cell, and then goes after nearby cells. But this takes a little bit of time. So in uh, virology, we call that an eclipse period. So that's why you hear with coronavirus it you know, we, we talk about this quarantine period of up to 14 days. And, and some states have enacted things that are longer, more than 14 days, because it takes a while for the cells, for the viruses to be put back together and then be released and go and do their job. So they have this latent period or eclipse period. With coronavirus from when you would actually get it to when we start to see signs and symptoms, it's about five days. So that's an average number. You might read literature that says five days or six days. But there's this quiet period when you don't know you have it. It's being, you know, put back together, assembled in the cells to then be released. Um, in terms of cleaning, a lot of the, the disinfectants we use are, are very adequate for both. We'll talk probably more about those later, but you really do need to read the labels on those and look at what the contact time is to kill certain types of bacteria, certain types of viruses. And then we have bacteria that sporulate. Uh, like C. diff, where um, we things like hand sanitizer can't penetrate them because they have this outer shell. So I guess we'll talk a bit more about hand washing, what soap and water does, what hand sanitizer does. Uh, but in general, all of the different disinfectants we use are, are very good against um, both bacteria and viruses that are that are on surfaces or in the environment. The, the main way that this is spread, this COVID-19, um, and the COVID just stands for coronavirus, and, and, it, um, and the, the CO is the corona, and then the virus for VI, and then D for disease, and 19 is just the year it was discovered. But um, the, the main way it's spread, and I'm sure you've heard this a lot, is by respiratory droplets. 
So we're not nearly as worried about it being on surfaces, on shoes. I mean, high touch surfaces, obviously we want to clean a lot, but our main, our main, you know, big issue is um, masks and preventing the spread through respiratory droplets. So there may be more questions relevant to that, but we can come back to bacteria and viruses later. I'll be quiet. Thank you. And given that you, Michelle, are in a multi-centered uh, or you oversee and own a multi-centered um, facilities of outpatient settings, one of the immediate questions that I want you to ask, uh, answer will be from the chat, but I also want you to include what you're doing as far as wellness checks for your staff and what you're doing in that way to keep your staff um, feeling confident that we're doing, we're practicing in a way that is a best practice and keeps us the most safe, given what we do know about how viruses are transmitted, specifically the coronavirus. So the question from the chat is, do you recommend outpatient clinicians wear safety glasses, goggles, and face shields? So if you can include that as part of your response, that'd be great. Sure. So let's, so if we're talking really about the safety of our staff. So one of the first things is, is um, we do keep a record and every day when people come to work, they do a temperature check and sign off in regard to standard symptoms or whether they've been exposed. That's something that's also mandated in Rhode Island. So some of these guidelines may vary a little bit state to state, but that's specifically something that we're doing for all employees. It also will help track and and in case there ever is an exposure or someone gets sick. And um, and I think it helps give a sense of safety to our employees as well. As far as PPE, in Rhode Island, it is actually a it is mandatory that everyone be wearing a mask, whether you're a patient or a clinician. So the thought of it is, is the belief is, and, and, and again, this isn't shouldn't be a discussion about whether masks work or not, but in Rhode Island, the way that it's been worked is that if you, we all assume that we are all carrying COVID and the mask prevents us from spreading COVID to somebody else. Um, so all of our therapists, all of our patient care coordinators, all of our administrative staff who are, who are coming to work must all wear a mask at all times. Um, the only time that we allow people not to be wearing a mask is if they are in a separate space away from any patients ever even seeing them because we don't even want a patient making assumptions that we're ever without a mask. So we're requiring that in any time any person is in a patient area, they must have a mask on. They can remove it if they are distanced for speaking on a phone, but that is the only time, or of course, if they're having trouble with breathing. But otherwise, they can only remove a mask if they're somewhere where they need to be, where they can eat. But again, that cannot be in a patient area. We are not having people wear face shields, goggles, glasses. It's not something that's been recommended by the CDC. It's not something that's been recommended by our Department of Health. Um, although if we had a person who wanted to wear glasses, we would definitely allow them, but that's not something that we are doing here. We're also not bringing people into the clinic who actually have active COVID. So therefore, people aren't coming in who are coughing or sneezing, things like that, because we're doing a pre-screened visit for our patients. But I can get to patients in a moment. 
So as far as keeping our staff safe, they are doing a screen each day when they come to work and then they are all being supplied and all wearing PPE. I know some questions have come up about should you wear gloves. Um, if some of our therapists will wear gloves, that is something that's of choice to our ther physical therapists when they're doing providing manual therapy, dry needling, other close contact, um, but they're all being obviously vigilant with their hand washing and social distancing from other staff. So um, the gloves for us is a choice, but face marks is um, a requirement. Um, if somebody is, ex one of our staff people does become sick, and we've had many people who have had COVID um, and have been removed from work, or anyone who's, anyone who's showing any symptoms or signs of COVID is immediately removed from the workplace. And from there, we have a screening tool and procedures in place. And if someone has ultimately had an exposure or being diagnosed with COVID, we're working with healthcare providers with their primary care docs and looking typically at a symptom way of determining when and if it's safe for somebody to come back to work. Michelle, are most of your um, patients adults or do you also see some children? Um, we see some children, not a lot. Um, we tend to see more teenagers and kid and some kids, but I mean, we see everything. I mean, we go, I shouldn't say we never see kids, but we don't have the strong pediatric population. We're generally orthopedics, a lot of spine, post-surgical. Um, we have a lot of pelvic health patients. We have a large pelvic health department, seeing both men and women pelvic health. We have a pool, so we deal with having a, with aquatic therapy, um, you know, chronic pain, all, all the sort of typical outpatient sides of things. Okay. Um, David, I'm probably going to, you or Michelle can respond to this next one, but I will ask you to raise your volume up some, David. Um, oh, sure. Thank you. So Erica says, hello, Michelle. And she um, asks suggestions. Erica Malo, that is. Erica. <laughs> um, she suggests, they're asking for suggestions and or recommendations for patient scheduling. Many people are treating one patient an hour or leaving a half an hour after for cleaning, et cetera. I'm in New York City and most of my patients have left. A few are still here, but I'm wondering what a realistic schedule is now. That's a really great question, Erica, and it's one that um, all of us who are in outpatients or private practice are struggling with because the model of how we used to care and for many practices, there's definitely a little bit more of a hustle and patients coming and going and, and you know, you may be working with someone for half an hour, but then with someone else. And that's just we can't do that now. So I think you bring up a great point, Erica, that we're all sort of trying to refigure out how to do this. I'll tell you what we're doing at our practice. This is not to say it's the only way to do it. And we're continuing to look at ways to do this in different ways. At this stage, what we're doing, we have removed our waiting rooms. We have tried to remove all forms of payment to credit card to minimize um, interactions with patient care coordinators. We put up screens at the front desk area. And when a patient comes in, there's a very quick check-in and they're immediately taken back to a clean treatment area and they'll work with the PT, a physical therapist. Um, they will have, they will be screened at that time by a support person or that physical therapist with the, the traditional COVID questioning, screenings, temperature taken, 
pulse ox. That's how we're doing it, and we're, I'm happy to discuss why or why you may not need to do that. Um, but that's how what we've chosen to do at this stage. Um, we're scheduling on the 45 minutes, and because of space, I think you have to think of space. We have the staff to say a person is treating, working one on one with the patient, but then we have a support person who's cleaning another area and bringing the next person into that area so that there's no to minimize the risk of any cross contamination. And when that physical therapist has finished their time with that one, then they can go clean their hands, et cetera, move to the next patient, and then there's time for that area to be cleaned. So it would be wonderful if we had the luxury of doing one-on-one -on -one care with half an hour in between to clean. But financially, it's, it's very hard to understand how that would work. So it's this very hard balance at the moment. I sometimes feel like Dr. Seuss, the cat in the hat, who's carrying all those different juggling lots of things because we're juggling how to have satisfied patients, safe patients, safe staff, but safety and we have to be clean and yet how do we efficiently efficiently do this so it's a model that's sustainable so we continue can continue to provide access to care. Thank you. David, did you have anything to add as far as scheduling is concerned? Um, I think the, uh, well, you know, one of the clinics that I'm involved with is uh, 50 minutes and then 10 minutes for cleaning. Um, but I think, you know, cleaning the environment is a small part of dealing with this compared to, again, the respiratory droplets and wearing a mask. I think that is really our biggest issue. And then there are a lot of people that, you know, could be out there. We have to treat everybody as if they're positive. If we have it and everybody else around us has it, we all wear a mask. That's our, our best bet to stay safe right now. Obviously, people could come into the clinic with no fever, normal pulse ox, very few, you know, or if or no signs and symptoms, and then potentially spread it if they're, you know, just someone that doesn't get a lot of symptoms from it or they're in an eclipse period of the virus. So I think that's kind of the scary part that we're all dealing with is, you know, cleaning as much as possible, washing our hands as much as poss possible. Um, I will say, you know, washing your hands is, is still recommended over hand sanitizers, even with, you know, the 60% ethanol or ethyl alcohol or 70% isopropanol, whatever. Because when you wash your hands for 20 seconds, you get the water everywhere. With hand sanitizer, people kind of drop some in there, they get parts of their hands. And in fact, one of the CDC recommendations was to wash your hands for 20 seconds, make sure you get everywhere. And the soap, in any normal soap, disrupts the, the lipid membrane of this RNA virus, mm. COVID, and destroys it. So, you know, one of the recommendations was wash your hands for 20 seconds, then use hand sanitizer after that and use enough hand sanitizer that it takes 20 seconds for it to dry on your hands. Mm. And, you know, we've probably all gone to a store where they've had one and it drops this little bit on there, which, you know, is about, you know, maybe just get your palms and kind of frustrating. You want enough hand sanitizer that you're basically your hands are going to stay wet. It's going to take 20 seconds to dry it all up. Um, Thank you. So Shannon asks that there's a number of scenarios that will come out about um, patient screening and symptoms and temperature screenings are fairly clean. You can say yes or no, but she'd like to hear from the two of you um, about exposure questions. So for example, people start traveling or doing more activities outside, then things get a little muddy. 
um, she's interested in your thoughts about how to manage that piece of it. And I can jump in for here because I think this is a excellent question because we're moving from a time of, and again, it depends which state you're in. So we were in a state of how do we stop this accelerated rate of COVID, which would overwhelm our hospital system. But we're in a different phase now. We're learning how to manage living with COVID. How do we learn to manage with it? And so as our states start to open up, and we, we have to follow a lot of our state's guidelines, the CDC guidelines, it's a lot because it keeps evolving and changing. And as each thing happens, you have to sort of, even mentally, I think, get prepared. Okay, they're going to start opening, like, opening up the states, the borders. So, for example, in Rhode Island, until today, if you traveled outside of Rhode Island and it wasn't for work, you had to go on two weeks of quarantine. That ends mm -hmm. tomorrow. So as of tomorrow, we'll no longer be asking our patients those questions. Before that, we wouldn't allow a person to come into the clinic if they had traveled. But as of not tomorrow, Monday, June 1st, that changes for us. Now, that, of course, brings up some fear. But I think what everyone has to realize is that's why you wear PPE. We're protecting ourselves and we're, ourselves and we're protecting our patients. So you've got to assume, as David mentioned, that every one of your patients potentially is carrying COVID. So whether they've come from a different state, whether they were in the work, hospital working in a COVID ward, you have to expect, pretend that they have, act like they have COVID. And that's why you wear a mask and your PPE and wash your hands. And that's why your patient wears a mask as well. And that's sort of why you're disinfecting and why you're thinking about air circulation and exposure. So I think it's getting used to that managing, living with a society with COVID. Thank you. David, I want to hear your any additions that you have. And I'd also like you to address whether or not there is any in your protocols for managing is there any follow-up with patients as far as if they later on became infected or do you check on your patients so that you could do any type of tracing, for example? Sure. Um, well, on the first part of that question, you know, the, there, was, there was a question on gloves, which I guess we should talk about, and then we can talk about tracing. Okay. Um, you know, gloves are not mandated. I mean, I, I do like people to wear gloves when they use some of these chemicals, uh, some of these quaternary amines and bleach solutions that – or harsh on your hands. And if you're going to be in, in frequent contact with high touch surfaces, I think those are times when gloves would be, uh, would be good to use, but it's not mandatory for what we're doing in PT. You know, some clinics might mandate it and I'm not sure Michelle, some of your manual therapists probably can't do their normal job with gloves. Um, so in terms of if a patient does test positive down the road, so if a patient tests positive, sorry, I'm going to get back on the screen here. If a patient does test positive, what happens with the health department is they're interviewed by the health department. And then they are, uh, they go through an initial interview process where they are asked to list every person that they've had contact with during that time. Then those people go into a separate file. And that's what I do in contact tracing is I have the, uh, I don't know if it's, Sometimes it's a bit intimidating, but I call maybe 30 people that have had contact with a patient who tested positive. 
and let them know. So I'm the first one that lets them know they had contact with this patient that tested positive and then what they need to do from there. And then we also ask them to quarantine for the next 14 days. And we follow up with them for every day, every day for 14 days. And we see how they do. And then of course, if one of them tests positive, then they go into the system. So it's really the health department that would, if, if one of your patients tested positive, it would be the job of your health department to get in touch with people at your clinic that were in contact with that patient. And thank you for bringing up the manual therapy. And maybe, Michelle, you can touch on this. Um, Lucy Kaduri asks, how are you managing manual therapy for the cervical um, spine or patients with um, temporal, mandib temporal mandibular dysfunction? So for temporal mandibular, we would always wear gloves anyway. So that hasn't changed. And for cervical spine, I, it's, it's for at our practice, it's at the discretion of the physical therapist. So they're still providing all those treatments. Um, nothing has changed there. We also do a lot of dry needling. That hasn't changed. But of course, that's an invasive, a slightly more invasive thing. So we already wore gloves for that anyway. So... Um, it's really up to the therapist's discretion, but we're certainly not mandating it. It's obviously for TMJ and for any internal work for our pelvic health and dry needling that wearing gloves was always part of the part of the process anyway. Thank you. Did you want to add something, David? I saw a question on UVC light, um, and, and I've done a, a fair bit of work on UVC light. I've done research on exposing different bacteria and viruses to UVC light over the years. Um, and, you know, UVC is, is not cheap. You've probably seen UVC robots that might disinfect a patient's room. They have to be moved around. The light is very intense. We have to, you know, black the windows out. We've used them in ORs. We've used them for feet, for shoes, as people walk into facilities. Um, so we've used it on water systems as well. It's used in HEPA filters for the airflow. HVAC systems are, are typically very contaminated. Um, I have, you know, I, we test routinely, we, we test the air ducts in patient rooms in hospitals, and we find all kinds of high levels of bacteria, and, and we can also find viruses in those. So, um, you know, UVC while effective, is gonna be effective against what it sees. So for example, on the UVC devices we installed in a hematology oncology ward, everybody who went in the room had to step on them to clean their shoes because we know shoes are a major carrier of bacteria. But anything that the patient already brought in there or that got in there not on shoes, it wasn't gonna you know, help against. So UVC is only gonna get what it can directly irradiate. So it is a, a part of the solution, but it's, it doesn't treat everything. So it has its pitfalls as well. I, I love UVC, I do research in it, but it has its limitations and it's of course not cheap. Right, so we have just over about 20 minutes. So we are gonna do rapid fire questions. And next one having to do from Teresa. So rather than having patients sign in for using a paper and pen method, can you give your thoughts on giving consent, verbal consent to treat and bill and document that the consent was done in the daily notes? Well, I think this is one of those areas um, that 
I, I'm not a compliance officer, so I might say something I shouldn't say here, but I, I will say that for our practice is what we're doing is yes, we're doing it verbally and we're using COVID as the reason. Um, we really all of our intake information is electronic anyway. So people do all of that before they even come to the clinic. So we have electronic consents already set up. So we didn't have to worry about the paper and pen. But if in the case that we have a patient who did come in who hadn't done it electronically for whatever reason that was, um, we would just do it verbally and document, just document everything um, and document the reason of, of why you didn't get them to sign. Um, there has been discussion, if you are having people sign things, then yes, make sure you, you're going to clean off that pen afterwards and you've got a clean pen area, dirty pen, like think about those kinds of things from an operational standpoint. But I do think it's a time where some there are some judgment calls that you need to make and um, and you think about the safety and the best practices and you document everything and, and there's going to have to be some leeway on some of the legal requirements. Um, and I'll obviously HIPAA is a big one there. Is there's some some softening of the HIPAA rules, and doesn't mean we shouldn't still be very aware of um, of patient confidentiality, but it means we can be less concerned about the ramifications if something doesn't we don't cross every T and dot every I. All right. Thank you for that HIPAA mention and privacy. That somewhat um, links to what Shannon is asking. And I'll start to respond. And if to one of you wants to add, you may. That recording employee temperature constitutes health records, which has to be maintained and retained for like 30 years, correct? But if state doesn't mandate keeping temps, can an employer just make self-checks and expectation? Is there an issue with not keeping temp records? So this is a common question that we've come across at the association level. And as we are in a pandemic and emergency state as a country, you one, of course, there's the federal level of regulation, but each state, as we mentioned at the top of this um, session, is at different places as far as the pandemic and reopening are concerned. So you definitely want to check your state. Practice acts as far as documentations and record keeping are concerned, and that does vary based on whether you're a child or an adult, for example, children's records, sometimes you have to keep them to 21 years of age or longer. So definitely check your practice act as far as that's concerned. As far as asking employees or setting up the expectation to do self-checks and or wellness checks, we are in a state right now where the recommendations from CDC and OSHA do include that this is an exception to the rule. So typically, you know, you can't mandate people to do certain things with respect to their health, but this is one of the instances where they, there is an, accept, um, an exception to the rule because of the pandemic where you can have that policy in place where you're asking and letting your employees know that you will be doing well checks of some sort and what that entails. If you want to add anything or should we go to the next one? I think you did a wonderful job. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So Michelle's asking our county, which is suburban area of Kansas City on, can on the Kansas side, just lifted all the rules and is up to business owners to implement guidelines. Do you suggest wearing masks for patients and clinicians as long as the federal pandemic continues? Absolutely. Yes. From my perspective. Uh, I think this is here to stay for a while. Um, we are not that close to a vaccine. 
even the rapid tests are not very accurate. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of viruses that are, that have never been, uh, you know, we don't have cures for, you know, things like, you know, uh, rabies, HIV, uh, herpes, things like that. I mean, this may be here for the long term. And I think getting used to wearing masks is going to be part of our life for the foreseeable future. You know, people talk about this virus. Could this virus mutate? It's already mutated. Right. 100%. Um, when the parts are put back together in the cell, sometimes things are just misarranged a little bit. The question is, will it mutate to something that could be worse or as bad? But it, it has mutated already 100%. Thank you. Let's talk about oxygen saturation. Shannon asks, um, what oxygen saturation threshold do you use with the pulse ox? I have some thoughts myself, but lo love to hear from the two of you. I'll let David take this one. I feel like he's a more scientific person than I am. Question <laughs> and say, why do we even take it? And I could answer that, but I think the actual figures, um, I'm going to trust David's response more than mine. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the figures a lot of people use around, you know, 90. Some use a little bit higher, mm -hmm. but you can have low SATs because of pulmonary disease. You can have low SATs for a lot of reasons. A lot of people with COVID don't have decreased SATs. And then the cheaper machines are very inaccurate. So in fact, we have one at home. It always says I'm 94. And then one at work always says I'm 99. So it's, you know, it's not another, it's not a bad tool to throw in there, but it's not the top thing we're using to make a recommendation. Right. And we have included that in a part of the recommendations for um, consideration in the APTA guidelines that were done with PPS and um, Rhode Island. But again, to David's point, I think one of the most important things is establishing a baseline and real and appreciating that that baseline is probably particular to the machine that you're using, which is just the same as blood pressure, right? So if you take blood pressure using the same cuff or different cuffs, you're going to get a different reading. So you have to be mindful of that. But it is the case that there are many people walking around with developing symptoms that um, otherwise are undetectable or that you don't see that they have a temperature or a cough or anything, but slowly their oxygen saturation has slowly started to diminish. And so that, that would only tip you off as far as if you had some type of baseline on them and again, using the same machine. So it's not a one-two punch answer that we could say definitively if everyone's at 89% um, saturation that you cannot or you shouldn't treat this patient or they should go get tested, but it's definitely an indication that you want to monitor at a minimum. The biggest thing I could leave you with today is that you have somebody with no fever, they have 99 on their SATs. It can give people a false sense of security. You still need to assume that that patient is COVID positive. Don't let those things when they come back negative lull you into false security. Thank you. So Leah asked, um, what is the concern about the virus being airborne of the clinic, especially one without good air circulation or I would add to her um, question, in a place that has air conditioning, when we're thinking about aeration of this, either or both of you can respond. I mean, Any I, suggestions? David probably has more actual suggestions. I'll tell you as a practice owner, we've at this stage been very mindful of the number of people in the clinic at one time, um, the space of the clinics, looking at the airflow. 
we have not invested in any changes with HVAC or UVC, although we're definitely looking at those things. Um, but we've been more able to monitor, manage it more just based on the less people in the clinics and making sure windows are open, things like that. But my other point would be like, there's another reason for your PPE. So you hear a lot of in the restaurant industry about the concerns with HVACs and people going to eat at restaurants and the virus coming through there. And that's because people are sitting there eating, spending time with this air circulating, but they're not wearing masks. So I'd be really interested too, to know that if we are all wearing masks, you know, how much, how important is it to start looking at that air circulation and looking at the HVACs and what should, is there certain recommendations that we should be considering? Carrie had the same question and also included using a HEPA filter for better ventilation. Any thoughts on? I mean, a good HEPA filter can catch, they, they are small enough that they can actually catch this virus. It depends on how often the air is circulated. You know, like on airplanes, people worry about that. That air is circulated at a very high rate. The air coming out is actually really clean. It's the people around you that could sneeze or breathe on you. That's the risk. The air coming out from the planes, I've actually were working on a Department of Defense grant for looking at air, decontaminating air in submarines and planes. And um, airplanes already do a really good job, but yet when they have identified, there's a few studies of patients with maybe like MERS or something that were on a plane and they still get about six to eight people sick um, just because of the people around them. So um, I think, you know, a, a good filtration system, you may have one already in your clinic, but if not, you know, it's something down the road that, that I think more people will be looking into. But again, these are not small dollar items. Right. So, so Brittany Kramer asked, are there any interventions that you have or you would recommend avoiding when treating individuals with COVID or what are their precautions when treating them? Well, if someone actively has COVID, um, at this stage, we're not bringing them into the clinic because I'm not sure how to manage it, to tell you. The, so uh, we assume that everyone has it and is carrying it. But if someone is actively has a fever and a cough, um, has tested positive, then they're not actually coming into our clinic. Um, and we would want them, we would need them to be, we would treat them with telehealth and wait till they were symptom free and had the, the correct amount of time before they had either tested negative twice or had the symptom, didn't have symptoms anymore. Yes, yeah. and some of the, go ahead, David. Oh, on the inpatient side, you know, it's full PPE and there, there's a bit of a dilemma. Some inpatient facilities, acute care hospitals are having all the COVID patients and PUIs, the people under, under investigation being treated by PT and some are saying, no, let's just kind of, you know, unless it's really critical for that patient, we won't do it. So there's some people are doing it differently, but full PPE. And then at the end of the day, take all your, you know, bring a change of clothes. I mean, viruses can survive on clothing. Somebody had mentioned that. We don't know how long COVID specifically survives on clothing and that, you know, uh, kind of uh, virion phase, but, you know, uh, I've seen everything from five hours to two days. Right. So um, it, it's a big range, but certainly changing, showering as soon as you get home, 
throwing that laundry in is to be on the safe side. Yes, and we have um, recommended in our consideration, well, in our considerations, if you know you're treating patients who do have COVID, similarly to what um, they're doing in inpatient settings, is to have an area of isolation. So it needs to be an area in which you could actually contain, you, you could keep, in theory, the containment recommendations for not, for limiting the spread of the condition. So that would include the route that the person's taking to that area of isolation and the area in which you are considering your COVID isolation area and then the imp implementing the cleaning and disinfecting. Um, the next question I think was answered as far as do we foresee time and in, in the next one to two years where masks won't be mandated for, for patients and staff. But if you wanted to uh, add anything to that thought, and then let's add to that. Do you think that it's really important to have a certain type of mask for your employees and or patients? Meaning, do you think everyone should have an N95 mask or just any type would be adequate within reason? So we are, the N95 is a, a challenging one because there's such a shortage of those. So, um, there's the question if an outpatient therapist should have an N95 over a therapist who's in a hospital is, is a concern, and that's been something that's gone on in New England. So our clinical staff are just as long as they are wearing heavy cloth masks, but masks. We did get some that were specifically made for healthcare providers and were recommended from the CDC for all of our staff to wear, but otherwise it we. We can use the paper masks that you buy, the cheap ones, and we have those available for patients, but otherwise making sure that we have a, a good fabric mask and making sure people understand how to wear it and not to touch their face. And those are the things that we've had to continue to educate, not just our staff, but our patients on. Like they have to cover your nose. You can't touch your face and, and those different things about, it's not just the kind of mask, but how to wear a mask. David, did you want to add? Sorry. No, I mean, I think, I think for, for patients that are immunosuppressed or elderly or have, you know, any, any um, of those precautions, they may want to continue to isolate more, wear a mask anytime they're out, maybe even an N95. But, um, you know, the CDC, and originally they had, you know, immunosuppressed, they had elderly, they only had two or three categories of people that, special precautions should be taken with. Now they've added to about, it's about 20 things on that list, <laughs> including BMI over 40, um, and diabetes and all kinds of other things. So uh, there's still there's still a lot that's unknown at this right. point. And that's why I don't see a lot changing. You know, if your clinic hasn't really looked at telehealth yet or what to do if things continue for a while, I would say I wouldn't sit there and just wait for especially as a practice owner, I wouldn't be sitting there waiting for this all to go away because this may be here to stay for a long time. One question that we got a lot who had to do with modalities. Are either of you using modalities in your clinic and what are you not using because of the potential spread of it? So for example, um, paraffin, fluidotherapy, you did mention, Michelle, that you're doing um, dry needling, but what about these other modalities? You know, I'll say for us, we're not a big modality practice. Um, 
it's actually helped us move away from modalities even more. And um, so we weren't using fluidotherapy or paraffin before. And um, because, and if we were, I'm not sure how I would clean those now. So I don't know. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable personally utilizing those. If you are using obviously things like electrical stim, you're obviously not gonna shear pads or do any of those things you shouldn't have done before. It's ongoing cleaning. We are no longer really using heat packs in our facilities. And I think mm. that's not saying you shouldn't use them, but we just kind of felt like it didn't seem right. Um, so, you know, we're sort of making sure that the time that our patients are in the clinic is very active time and not passive time. If there's things patients can be doing independently at home, for example, like save the ice pack for when you get home and use it then rather than sitting in the clinic and adding people in. So we're making those kinds of adjustments as a way to decrease the people in the clinic and the chances for people, you know, cross-contaminating things like that. So I just think you have to be mindful of the modalities and obviously have systems in place to ensure that you're cleaning them as you should have before this. But um, there's a few things that you mentioned that I wouldn't, I, I don't know how you do them at the moment, things like fluidotherapy and paraffin. We're trying to avoid anything that creates laundry too. So, yeah. you know, like yeah. a pack, like with, even with ultrasound and wiping things off, we're not using towels uh, because then someone has to take that laundry and do it. We're using rolls of bounty and then I'm not advertising for bounty. That's what we have. And then, you know, throwing that in our, in our waste. Uh, but E-STEM is pretty much the, probably the only one that's really easy to, to do at this time. The other modalities become more problematic. So we're coming to the end of our time and I wanna make sure that if your question didn't get answered, please feel free to use the email addresses that were provided for you earlier in this chat, which is practice-department, D-E-P-T, at APTA.org or the advocacy at APTA.org. Um, but I do want to give each of our panelists today an opportunity to, one, I would like to express our deepest gratitude for your expertise, for being clinicians in the trenches, researchers in the trenches, and for sharing your expertise and time with us here today. Um, one of the last questions I'll ask, and then I'd like you to follow up each by taking a couple minutes, um, one to two minutes to leave us with any nuggets that you think we should have um, moving forward in our reopening or maintaining opening during the country's reopening during the pandemic. And the last one was if there was a specific type of N95 mask for people with huge beards, for example, that may have a huge beard for religious purposes or that may pass CDC guidelines that you may know of. I can't answer that question. I, I don't, don't know. know. So we actually have new employees shave when we fit them for protective devices. So guys actually have to shave at least, you know, at that time period. Now, we've not had that issue with the, it, you know, not wanting to for a religious purpose. So I haven't crossed that bridge. Yeah, I haven't come, um, APT hasn't come across the solution to that. I have, I did read something today where a gentleman who was, who is a Sikh and he actually cut his um, beard off, which is, you know, that's a big deal for, to ask somebody to do. I don't know that there are any recommendations that we could um, or mandates that would say that an employer can mandate somebody to do that 
or not meaning the cutting of the beard, wearing of the mask. We're at that point, but I don't know beyond that. Um, thanks for the question. But yes, so David and then Michelle, leave us with your nuggets before we sign off. Um, I think we've we've kind of given a few not being lulled into false sense of security by negative temperature, good pulse socks. Don't drink bleach. There's a skull and crossbones on the bottle for a reason. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and I also... I don't think this is going to pass very quickly. I think we're going to be dealing with this for a while to come. So um, I'm hoping I'm wrong, but working in bacteria and in virology, I, I don't see this going away quickly. And if you have a contact um, that you wouldn't mind sharing, please do so as well. Yeah, I can't type into the chat. If you can type in there, you could put my email for me. For some reason, it won't let me type. Perfect. Okay, great. I'll do that. And Michelle. So I would say, I would say don't become complacent. I think it's easy to get complacent as you start to get more comfortable. But I think as David said, this isn't going away. I think look at where you're getting your information from. And because there's so much information out there. So APTA, CDC, and your state's Department of Health and Business Regulations. Those sort of the areas that if you can focus on those three areas, then you can figure out what the right thing for you to do in your state and where it's at. I think also um, realizing that every part of the country is being impacted in very different ways at very different times. So respecting the challenges that every person is dealing with through this how someone in Manhattan is being impacted compared to somewhere in, in a different in the Midwest, it's very different. And the questions about should you close a practice, shouldn't you close a practice, telehealth, it get, gets very confusing, but we all have to sit back and look, look where our community's at. Physical therapy is an essential service. We need to be able to provide care, but we need to be able to do it safely. But with telehealth, with the guidelines that we set up in our outpatient practices, we can do that. But be mindful and just realize that different practices in different parts of the country and different populations, it's all going to be a little all over the place. And the guidelines we set up are to help you to create structure and support for your community and your practices. They're, they're there to help everyone to be able to be successful in providing ongoing care but that may vary a little bit state to state and that's okay well thank you both and thank you for your continued care of our communities and we hope that we can continue to be in communication because as we all know this is a constantly evolving um, circumstance and condition in which we're in and Right now it's COVID and of course there'll be something hereafter and hopefully that we'll all learn from this experience and continue to do our best as we create best practices and serve our constituents. I wish you all well and thanks to our speakers. Thank you very much. Official guidance is changing rapidly as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to evolve. APTA set up a webpage to keep you informed at www.apta.org slash coronavirus. Please visit regularly and stay safe. We're all in this together.